Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking and film theory. In each programme we'll focus on a particular movie, we're going to review it, talk about it, discuss some of the ideas and themes it throws up. And as always we'll end with some recommendations for films to watch following this week's film based on the cast or the directors or the theme or pretty much anything. Before we all that, who are we and what should you care? So my colleague on this podcast is Sam Knowles, Dr. Sam Knowles. He is a writer and teacher on all things words and pop culture. He writes about movies, he writes about graphic novels, he writes about anything that is culturally based. I'm Rob Mathon. I've spent the last 10 years working in the British film industry, working on big scale productions, little productions, working in the editorial side. Uh, and these days I review movies on here and on various websites. Great. Um, I just wanted to add something actually. It came, came out of a conversation that you had with someone on Twitter, which is it's weird eavesdropping on people's conversations. Um, but you mentioned, we well, mentioned there lots of the writing I did, but you also mentioned in passing that I'm a teacher and that's what I do in my day job. That's what started this week. Um, and similarly, um, you're hearing Rob's thoughts after 10 years in the movie business. So the aim of this podcast is not to, well, not always to show off but is genuinely to educate people and share what we've learnt and what we've um, derived mm. from our experiences. So just wanted to get that in, because it came up in uh, your own conversation with someone about uh, some some references from the, from the podcast and you mentioned film school. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that, that, that was the, sort of the initial genesis of this, was kind of like a, an audio film school kind of thing, mm. and it, but tied to real world, so what we, it's each week's tied to a film and tied to ideas about that film. And sometimes tenuous, sometimes they're very sort of core to a lot of the experience. Right, I've, I've digressed long enough. And uh, this week it was your turn. It was my turn, and I picked the 2000 film High Fidelity, written by Nick Hornby, by Stephen Frears, starring John Cusack. It tells the story of Rob, a sort of rough record store owner, and certainly a sort of man-child, you'd say. He and his sort of cohort of uh, equally nerdy and obsessive friends, and about his breakup with his long-term girlfriend and the subsequent fallout and effects of that. It is it's written by Nick Nick Hornby. His name you might have heard. He also wrote about a boy. He wrote Fever Pitch. He wrote An Education. He's written several things, and directed by Stephen Frears, also a uh, a well-known director. Done things like Matenzin Presents, Dirty Pretty Thing, The Queen. Uh, these are these are sort of films of our of our time. Mm. Starring John Cusack, who up until kind of the early two thousands made a career out of playing the disaffected, the slightly old loner type, um, but with mm. a the heart of gold. And if you watch his early films, um, they don't say anything. High fidelity and it's kind of its companion piece, Grace Went Blank, certainly feel like the growing-up versions of the characters he was playing when he was younger. Mm-hmm. He has excellent support in the film, I think, from Jack Black, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Joan Cusack, Tim Robbins. Uh, there's a lot of great sort of bit-part castings in this. And essentially, he goes through a period of looking back at his, all his long-term breakups, um, all the, the top five, as he calls his top five breakups, why they didn't work, and hoping kind of that he can salvage something of his life from those stories i will say that my description makes it sound far more kind of goodwill than it is it's quite a misanthropic character mm. he's he, he's kind of he's very angry at the world angry at himself he's 
that kind of obsessive niche nerd that we all know and probably I am um, that judges everyone around him and you do have his two two shop workers uh, Jack Black and Todd Luizio who are very other extremes that one's very angry one's very quiet but they both kind of have that same kind of elitist isolationist vibe to them mm. I think that's a good place to jump off it is a well known film Sam your thoughts yes um I, I I really like this film. Um, I think I may have seen it before, but I it, it was worth seeing again anyway. Mm. Um, I may just have memories of of seeing other of reading other Nick Hornby stuff, but I I very much enjoy it. I'm watching this. Uh, the good thing to come out of this, one good thing to come out of this for me particularly, was remembering just how much I like John Cusack. Um, and also, um, also Jack Black. I also mm. was. I, I really enjoyed their and um, their presentations of these characters. Um, and I think it's, it's right. We're saying about this misanthropic um, arc to the character. He's very um, because when when you say he decides to um, go and look back at his former relationships, um, he, he does do that. But the reasons he does that are not to do with how could I have been a better person and no. how how could I have made more complete the life of the person I was with. It's very much a how successful was I in this person's eyes. Um, and you get that. We, there's, that comes back to this idea that you get throughout the film of top fives. And a top five is always... Um, well, Jack Black puts it, a top five has always got to be a bit quirky and... Um, it's always showing yourself in a good light. Mm. Um, and Jack Black comes up with top five songs, songs for a funeral, for example. But it's always um, showing off your own nerd credentials or your own um, familiarity with the subject um, to the best effect. So when John Cusack presents his top five all-time breakups, it's got nothing to do with um, his consideration for, oh, what, what went wrong here? What did I do? How could I have made these relationships work? It's very much a how how can I work out what happened and turn things around to my own advantage? Mm. Um, he's, he's a very, I found myself not, not screaming at the, at the film, but certainly writing in capital letters, how has he not realized it's all his fault at a certain mm. point in the film when you just, you, you could see it. You, you, you knew why things had gone wrong. You knew exactly why things had gone wrong. Um, and I don't know whether that's, um, it could be a product of a, particular Nick Hornby narrative um, but so I think that that is that that is what is central to um, to this this film particularly is is how he his his journey from making a relationship all about him and all about his achievements to understanding what went wrong from other people's perspective is is very much a, a growth towards humanity rather than mm. um, a, a tongue-in-cheek comedy about uh, about going back and touching base with with former partners, but I, I would agree. I think also it's something that his growth to humanity is almost an accidental thing. It mm. isn't his goal at any point. No. Very much, he wants validation that he did the right thing. That he he was hard done by. All the tales he tells of his breakups are him being dumped and how awful it was. And you see through the film that he did the dumping a lot of the time, and he yes. wasn't, like yeah. he he he's wrote into glasses of his history, almost the opposite of that they are stories of his woe and how he was hard done by through his entire life. 
Mm. But that isn't the case. Once you start meeting his his exes, um, some of them like clearly did break up and break his heart. Some of them went on to marry the person they left him for. Some he literally dumped them. Yes. And, yeah. And it's very much you kind of at no point does Rob come across as the hero of the film. No. And even at the very final section, the, the, almost the third act completion, it, his his only kind of realization moment is when he, he almost fucks up again entirely. Yes. He almost yes. slips into old ways and he catches himself and stops himself in time. And that's it. Like literally he just he doesn't do any better, he just doesn't do worse. Um, yes. But I think yeah. that I think Nick Hornby's work in general certainly has this element of men coming to terms with their history and their emotions and their lives in terms of adulthood. But if things mm. like Fever Pitch excuse me. Fever Pitch um, and About a Boy all have these themes of like, modern manhood and what does it mean to be a man and especially mm-hmm. in things like Fever Pitch and Hypothetical they're all about obsession Fever Pitch being football and this being music mm-hmm. but there is a the idea that men have this kind of I can't remember like, almost a a cataloguing mentality of our obsessions yes Hypothetical certainly is all about top five knowing as you said knowing all about it knowing all about the obsession um, and kind of how how do you correlate that and how do you come to terms with being in a relationship where it isn't all about being right or knowing the most yes and yeah. it does feel like that kind of we talked about it a little bit last week on Trainwreck not a modern rom-com but a sort of a grown-up rom-com mm. it feels messy and it feels awkward and that no one's really right and even his girlfriend who leaves him could easily be portrayed as you know the the queen and the, the glorious one who left him because he was a mess she's equally messed up and she yes. is, she isn't in any way the heroine of the film I mean, she isn't she's a good person but she does things in the film where you're like well I, that doesn't make me like you in any way no some of his exes certainly come across in quite a nice manner um, but some of them don't it, it was strange that they suppose the message of the film being kind of coming to terms with who you are there's a, a great scene in which he's written his top five jobs he could have in the world yeah. And there are things like record producer in the seventies, obviously on a Rolling Stone interviewer in the seventies, and ends up with architect on the last yeah. list because he can't think of anything else he'd rather have. Despite that, he owns a record store, and the arc of the film, as I saw it, was him kind of coming to terms with who he was, and his coming to terms with that was what brought him back with his his girlfriend. Yeah. It wasn't about his growth. It wasn't about him becoming a different person in the way many rom coms are. Like most of the characters end the film the same person they start the film at. But they have this moment where they kind of come to terms with who they are and what their life is. Um, and to me, one of the most telling speeches in it um, was a speech that he gives about women's underwear, which is strange yeah. to say. But it goes on about how the women in his fantasies are all in basically lingerie. And his, his girlfriend, it's always cotton pants that have been worn a thousand times and washed a thousand times. And the idea of living in this fantasy world where all women wear lingerie all the time, to him has always been the seductive allure of that and his coming to terms with reality where actually everybody has the grey pants they've worn a thousand times and everybody has this real person behind the fantasy mm. and his journey is I felt to me like coming coming, coming to terms with that going, going back to this the top five list that you mentioned and mm. also this idea of conscious sense or something I write Ponzi theory alerts this is this just came to me this may be utterly ridiculous but the fact that the he mentions four jobs which are 
um, beyond the bounds of possibility. They're all historical jobs. Mm. And then, as you said, the fifth job is an architect, even though he owns a record store, even though he hasn't really, like, he doesn't really want to be an architect no. in the real world. So my my Ponzi theory is that this film is about him, his 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 journey towards building himself. Like this idea of being an architect is him building a home for himself. Mm. And that's what this, this film is about. I, I can see that. I think it's also worth noting that to, to back up your Ponzi theory, um, that <laughs> the other jobs on the, on the list are all about being near greatness. Mm. Yeah. All about him being a report. It's like they, they, they are about being a, a reporter or being a record producer. But um, also, they, not never, never, never too close to greatness. No, it's always sort of I could be a guitarist with so and so and so and so, but maybe I'm I'm never going to be as good as him, or I'm never yes, going to yes. touch greatness like that. Uh, yeah, he doesn't. He's a musician, but it's just you know mm. he doesn't, doesn't want to be famous; he wants to be a musician. And it's all about being next to the thing that he thinks is good, and the externalization of adoration, I suppose. Mm. Um, and I think part of that is linked to him, let's say earlier with him being beaten down in his view, beaten down all his life. But he's under the impression that he's never going to get to the fantasy. He's never going to get this dream. And he's got to live in this role that's been assigned to him. Mm. And the end of the film is about him coming to the fact that he, actually this isn't an assigned role. It's a role, role he's chosen. And he has this sort of the arc where he starts to produce an album for some like kids locally. Rather than being just a seller of it. Mm. And it's kind of him coming to terms with what he can and can't do. And making the choice to do them. So it isn't yes. about... I've got to do this because this is my role. This is the hand that life dealt me, and it, it's terrible, but it's all I've got. And it's him coming to terms again. You know what? Yes, like this. This is where I am, and I'm going to make myself a person who loves this world and seeing obviously for what it is. Hmm. I think that it obviously does the top five thing. I don't know whether, without wishing to kind of play into any kind of gender roles here, it does feel like a very male thing. Hmm. It does feel like a very male, and this does feel like a rom com about being a man for men. And that is a, a wild stab in the, in the gender politics dark, I'm not aware of that. But it did feel kind of aimed at the masculine experience, certainly, and the masculine nerdy experience in detail. Hmm. I wonder why... Here's me musing out loud, I have no idea what the answer is, but why, why the masculine nerdy experience leans towards cataloguing this way and the feminine nerdy experience would, would maybe not do that? I well, I mean, yeah. I, I, I speak in, in very, very broad brushstrokes, so I apologise to anyone who feels outside, falls outside these categories. But in my experience of nerdom, which is extensive in many ways, male nerds tend to fall into this categorization of knowing all about it. I, I, I'll hand up, hold up my hand and say that I, I remember as a kid going through the specs of Enterprise and knowing about all the bits and bobs and all the history. And I will happily spend hours reading you know, the fictional history of, of country. I've got a book in front of me now, a fictional history of Westeros from Game of Thrones. And I would delve into that. Hmm. The female nerd experience tends to be much more creative, in my experience. They're the ones who write fan fiction. They are the ones who devour fan fiction. They're the ones who make art. They tend to make... They're the ones who twist the um, the world to their feet. So a lot of the art you see, when it's set in that world particularly, tends to be for male audiences, or maybe male creator. When they've done the mashup or the doing it in a different world or changing it around tends more towards the female experience. Once again, broad brushstrokes, so I apologise if anyone feels like something like that. And I, I wouldn't... I, I'm in no way gender, gender scholar to be able to say why things fall down that line. But it is noticeable that the men certainly feel on the, on the nerdier side of things, and that's how 
I don't really score points, and whether it's kind of a more of a combative nature of of how we're raised as genders. But obviously, you can score points when you know more. But it's very hard to score points when you are doing a creative way of doing things. You see, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I remember being in my thirties and going to nerd conventions sort of fifteen years ago. It was all about trophy hunting. It was all about knowing more, and that was how you scored the kudos points among your friends. Like telling telling a friend a bit of trivia he didn't know was you felt great doing it and generally they felt great getting it because it was more information mm. and that can was i just abundant. just pick up on something that people yeah. may have heard you just said in your 30s 15 years ago how old are you i'm in my 30s now and i started going my first convention i went to when i was was when i was 14 so that right. was 18 years ago right okay sorry that was me <laughs> tripping over my words i think also that there's a just to jump topics a little bit there is a element of this film that is unusual and that's what I'd call the soundtrack right but as opposed to the score this film almost doesn't have a score mm. the soundtrack is the score which is unusual because most films will have an element of of score um, and just for those who you know, the difference is soundtrack tends to be songs that exist anyway um, score tends to be the orchestral or the the instrumental music that kind of beds under uh, scenes yes yeah. so um, the soundtrack will be um, immediately recognisable as from other sources, whereas you'll get the score to you know, the Hunt for Red October or Jurassic Park, and that will be immediately recognisable as this this set movie theme. Yes, I think I think it's understandable to see why in this film we get a soundtrack rather than a score, mm. given the content. Um, but I thought it was very interesting that I'm trying to think of other films that play with this trick of having almost entirely a soundtrack but no score I'm not sure um, I'll, I'll let you think about that I would just would, would pick up on that that use of um, use of the mu- music or use of songs kicking in at particular points and when when Rob makes a discovery fairly early on uh, about his his girlfriend Laura um, he flips and the music changes abruptly and we get another song intruding another song mm. being introduced and you then you have you have things like the the words of the songs are very noticeable like the the line won't somebody please help me with my misery is one i wrote down that the soundtrack in in that respect matches the film and matches what's going on i think that's i think you also got the uh, sort of part of that is what um is it, is it didactic Didactic and the music, I think, is so one music is in the scene, so the characters themselves are hearing it as well. Being a record oh, yeah. store, yeah, I, I think I've used the right term there, but basically, this is music that's in the record store. So a lot of the music comes from the actual scenes they're in, but you're right, mm-hmm. they do change that occasionally, and they you think you're listening to something that they listen to, and then you're not because they're mixing it in with the um, with the uh, with the sort of the story going on. And I think this mm-hmm. one's getting ties back to as we we're saying about the the sort of the nerdy experience and the pop culture experience because there's a element of recognition occasionally because they do pick some very popular songs but also some slightly less popular songs songs you might not have heard of but you mm. might have heard of them and there's an element of like oh yeah I know this song there's a, a bit where he goes I will now, se- now sell three copies of the Beatles band as yes yeah. and he puts on a track for Beatles band and it is the most famous track it's a very good track but unless you were into music at a certain time in your life and are of a certain age it is a song that could have easily passed you by mm. and yeah. Sam and I are both white clothes in our 30s and we know that song but someone's five years younger than us may never have heard of it and my parents certainly have heard of it 
and there is that element of like oh i'm on the inside here i get why they're they're doing that and you kind of it feels like you're kind of in the club but you there's an element of kind of inclusiveness from exclusiveness in, in that respect this is a this is a really clever film um this is in in, in yeah in, in that idea of sort of taking taking a song and playing on this idea of inclusiveness and basically inserting a song as an object that means something to its audience as well mm. as to the audience in the film it's a really clever it's a really clever film and you don't get many others that do that they get this the music working in several ways it's not just music working for the benefit of the viewer it's music working for the benefit of the viewer and for the benefit of those in the film yeah i think i think the use of music is very very interesting thing. I think it's the thing to say. It's one thing I want to look, talk about this week. And I think you're right. It kind of it does some very clever tricks, and a lot of the film is flashback. So you see flashbacks to his early relationships, mm. and you you kind of see a his changing music, change, changing style. So there's bits where he's very punk. There's some bits where he's much more kind of Axl Rose rock. Um, and in those scenes, I made a note that it, almost all the music you hear in those scenes is right for the era. Right. So they yeah. clearly set this film in two thousand. Said he's, however, he's in his thirties, and so they counted back to when he was twelve, when he was sixteen, when he was seventeen, and the songs you hear are of those, of those um, era. And I wonder whether this is one of those films that you and I are going to love because we're a similar age bracket and we're a similar kind of lifestyle. But if we were to show it to, I don't know, a inner city kid who's fifteen, if it would have any kind of resonance with them mm. because of that kind of that disconnect between our cultural experience which is this is was not exact close enough and their cultural experience and if it's you see what i'm saying Hmm. yeah also though there's um there's a particular i'm trying to work out how to phrase this but um you and i were not 32 when this film came out no as john cusack was well, he was around. He was like thirty three, thirty four. Um, but this, this is this film because of that very careful selection of music for the flashback scenes, for his his development in the film. Um, this this use of music is very particular to someone who was thirty thirty ish when the film came mm. out. But because you and I have been exposed to films of the late nineties and early two thousands, we have kind of adopted the cultural tastes of a generation ahead of us. Do you see what I mean? But I, like I, we, we, we can we we appreciate things that we shouldn't really appreciate because of film. I, I see what you're saying, but I think there's a I think there's almost a much longer white podcast here of if you look at like high school films, as which we will touch on at some point I want this high school films tend to make two years to make and they're made by people in their thirties and forties for people who are 14 upwards about people who are 17 upwards mm. and there's a whole world in there of who's setting that culture you know I remember watching American Pie as a kid and probably being a little bit too young to be the characters in American Pie mm. but in that way I was the target market for it yeah but it was made it was written three years before it came out it was made by people actors were in their 20s directors were in their 40s you know like there's a a weird disconnect of like yes we are the right age group to be the characters in this film but that isn't to say it wasn't actually aimed at us, and maybe that's how a lot of culture works, in that we're always aiming for that little bit higher, or occasionally that little bit lower. I know, like, just to jump to the TV show Skins, when that came out, I was probably a little bit too old 
to be a character in Skins, mm. but everyone of my age group watched it, and you kind of that kind of there's always that that harkening back and forth that every generation kind of crosses into other generations, um, sort of, of media and cultures like guys. Yeah, but I think one week we'll do a week on high school films and cover all of that in detail. Yes, well, just just one thing. One thing about high school films and is this could be why it's often so difficult to make a, high, a sequel to a high school film because mm. if there are characters who are seventeen, eighteen, being played by twenty two, twenty three year olds, then you've got two years of production and post production, and then another six months for it to be released and gain popularity, and for a sequel to be greenlit. And then you've got another two years of production. So by the end of filming, the, these are going to be sort of 25, 26 year olds. And you have a John Travolta in, Gre- in Greece 2 sort of thing. And, and, and the moment's gone off. It's not like American Pie, mm. which really was a home run culturally wise. Two and three, whilst being fun films, never quite yeah. got it together. And I think, I think three, I'm trying to think about what happened in three. But even I think three was actively awful. And I think three is the wedding. That was a terrible film. And it just as long as we like, this is where you get into the world of terrible sequels. It's because the moment goes. You know, films mm. exist for a certain moment, um, yeah. and some surpass that. But very much the sequelitis that we experience is often because the initial moment worked brilliantly in the you know that year it came out, but then it just kind of passes. Mm. So Sam, as always, we kind of end with some recommendations. Yes. This week, what have you got for us? Well, this week, not so much two recommendations, but more, um, one of my recommendations is sort of a, a smorgasbord of, of John Cusack films. Um, okay. I think that John Cusack is an underrated actor, and I particularly enjoyed his films ranging between sort of 98 and 2001. So mm-hmm. I like Gross Won't Blank, I like this, I like Pushing Tin, I think Pushing Tin's a brilliant film. Um, underrated certainly very underrated and I think that was I mean, if, if I had to s- stick with one recommendation I'd go with that but I wanted to men- mention Serendipity which I, I think's alright uh, <laughs> so I, I would just say anything with John Cusack in certainly from that period that you mentioned at the beginning as being um, his sort of the, the end of his or the beginning of his shift to another character this idea mm-hmm. of playing someone with a hut of gold um, that'd be one um, my other recommendation, completely off-piste, uh, but it's another film that uses music to punctuate action very well. Um, and well, it's certainly not the same genre-wise, and it's not really the same. We're not talking about pop culture here, but it's the mid-80s film Amadeus. Uh, that no. is another film that uses music brilliantly. I'm not comparing it. I'm not. It's, it's not as good as High Fidelity, but um, it's an interesting one to watch in terms of thinking about the way that a soundtrack can be used. I, I would echo that. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting film. It's not. I, I'm not a huge fan of it, but I think it's a very interesting film to watch. And if you're mm. um, looking at films, it might push your sort of experience. It's working out. I've almost mimicked you in having a Cusack film and a non Cusack film. Okay. The Cusack film I've picked is is well before your current uh, sort of era. It's from 1985. And it's oh, right. Better off dead. He's a teenager. He's very much playing the proto Rob Gordon, the proto uh, Martin Blank. It's his teenage films. Hmm. Uh, his girlfriend dumps him. Family crises emerge. It's very much like a probably high high school film, and was one of the films that really kind of launched him in is a kind of leading man and that kind of say anything pre 2000 era and i think it's 
it's one of the ones often forgotten outside of America, and it's worth checking out. Mm. I think it's it's a it's very much an eighties high school film in that kind of in that kind of genre, but it's worth watching. And secondly, I've got another film that's all about music, and I think whilst it has more of a score, it still uses music greatly, and that's almost famous. Great film. I I really enjoyed that film. I, I'm a huge fan of it. It's year two thousand, so same kind of same year as High Fidelity. Cameron Crowe about a about a journalist in the seventies, a kid from the seventies, dealing with this kind of classic rock era. It is loose and it is rambly, but it is about being a music nerd. It is about being the guy outside the creative, but also being obsessed with the creative and mm. how that obsession takes various forms. In his world, it's kind of knowing all the songs, and then you have you've got people like Kate Hudson playing Penny Lane, who's a groupie, and all the levels of obsession and even from the artist's point of view their obsession with making the music mm. it's and it's a beautifully written film a beautifully shot film I would highly recommend it and at some point I do want to cover it on the podcast itself but for this week it is my recommendation can I just can we just pause and remember how good looking Kate Hudson was in the year 2000 she really was <laughs> next week is my choice it is and I would like us to watch um, the I believe it's the same year as High Fidelity, also 2000 film, uh, Sexy Beast. Um, Sexy, wow. And I think, it, given given the, the renaissance in gangster films and legend coming out this, this week, the Tom Hardy film, that craze, um, and also the preponderance of gangster TV series on, on mm-hmm. Netflix with Breaking Bad and Sons of Anarchy and other things, I, I think Sexy Beast is a really good one to look at. Sounds awesome. Do get in touch with us on Twitter. Uh, you can... Find me at life underscore academic. You can find me at Rob Kaiju. Or you can find the podcast itself at the Prestige Podcast. That's at Prestige Podcast. Um, and I would just say we got a great bit of feedback from um, someone on Twitter. Um, Matt Wanders got in touch uh, to talk more about hard and soft sci-fi from your discussion of that, thinking about Looper. Um, and I was both gratified to get this feedback and also... A bit confused because uh, I don't know about hard and soft sci-fi, and that, that was your area. Um, yes. So he, you and Matt need to have a chat because he knows a lot about that, and so do you. So sure thanks for that. It's very much appreciated, and do get in touch, anyone who would like to. And we will see you guys back here next week. Bye. Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr. Arg.